Pursue your purpose, speak your truth, deal with adult bullies, cope with failure, live beyond fear, establish values, set boundaries, move past trauma. These are all the themes in my Amazon bestseller, The Smart Girls Handbook. Tribers, get in close. For 15 years, I have been searching for a book that didn't exist. So I am thrilled to share that I decided to write it. The Smart Girls Handbook is available to buy now from wherever you get your books and also in Canada, the United States of America, New Zealand and Australia. Everything we do is a response to something you have asked for and girl have you been begging me for a book for years. Who is it for you? The reviews are outstanding, the press has been phenomenal and I am overwhelmed by the amazing support it has had already. This isn't my book but our book. I realised after my talks around the world women would be queuing for hours just to ask me one question. I didn't want them to just walk away but to have a tangible source to have forever and this is it. This is refreshing never before read content that will inspire, motivate, empower, inform and entertain you. It's full of my personal development tips that have got me living as my most authentic and highest self, literally glowing from within. My most vulnerable moments and hilarious stories that will resonate with you. The Smart Girls Handbook is a celebration of womanhood and the book missing from your library. So grab your copy today, tag me on Instagram at smartgirltribe and I will send you an exclusive gift just to say thank you. Dr. Kate Truitt is a licensed clinical psychologist and has dedicated her life to supporting individuals as they learn, heal and grow into living their most fulfilled life. Have you ever been ghosted or gaslit? Did a parent, sibling, teacher or even friend abandon you? Have you ever failed or been rejected? Are you codependent and struggling to heal? In this beautiful podcast episode, Dr. Kate will teach you how to recognise an abandonment wound, ways it shows up that you're not aware of, how to no longer self-abandon, and how to cope if you ever were abandoned as a child or even as an adult. It really is one of the most powerful episodes on the Smart Girl Tribe podcast and is full of fantastic takeaways. Hello, Dr. Kate. Thank you so much for joining the Smart Girl Tribe podcast today. I would love to ask you, how did you get into healing abandonment and how can you define it for our audience, please? Hi, Scarlett. It's so great to be here. And this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. Um, so I'm, my background is I'm a neuroscientist and a clinical psychologist, and I've been practicing for around 20 years. And the way I really like to think about abandonment is from a neurobiological point of view. One of my core structures in the way I work in my clinical practice, my, my research, everything that I do is from this very real reality that we all have a brain. And that brain sometimes results in us doing kind of wackadoodle things that might leave us feeling confused or shameful or bad. And uh, the abandonment wound is one of those core things because when we have, and I will get deeper into what it is and what it looks like and it feels like, but it feels really, really painful when we're in that deep space. And because we all have a brain, we all function in some ways in very similar ways. And one of the core functions of our brain is to keep us alive. And if you think about when we're first born, we're pretty vulnerable. We're just (laughs) wee little things, right? And we need our caregivers, we need our village to keep us safe and alive. And so when we look at the abandonment experience, it's deeply embedded in our biology to need other people. Mm -hmm. So can an abandonment wound only be caused by someone leaving or rejecting you? That's one of the things that's really interesting, Scarlett. I'm so glad you bring that up because it's one of those experiences where we can be sitting in a room with somebody and think about if you've ever had this moment in your own life and I invite the, re- the listeners to do this as well. And we feel abandoned even though the person who we're experiencing the abandonment from is sitting right next to us. They might even be brushing up against our shoulder, but we still feel as though we have just been left by that person. And so that's such an interesting thing to notice for ourselves because the word abandonment, if somebody literally walks out a door and shuts it, 
-hmm. our brain can sit there and go, oh, I can make sense of that loss. That person's literally gone or somebody unfollows us on social media. We can then synthesize that and make sense of it. But the deepest abandonments and the most painful are when they're right there next to us. And so when we get back to that first thing that we were talking about, that idea that we all have this brain and its number one job is to keep us alive, to make sure we survive. That's where we start to see the wound part of abandonment come out because our brain will start to act and react to the experience of people being there, but being gone at simultaneously. So not being able to connect with us, not being able to meet our needs, which as that wee little babe, we have to have our needs met or we die. Mm -hmm. or if we even travel back, you know, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 years in time, and we're you know, roaming across the land and we need our village because if we don't have a village, we can't gather food or we can't get meat. We can't set up homes. We can't stay safe. We need our village to survive. Would you say then that we can develop an abandonment wound that we all have an abandonment wound within us? We all have the possibility of one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. We are hardwired to need each other. Mm -hmm. And the majority of the time when we experience abandonment as adults, the way that we react to being abandoned or rejected, for example, even broken up with, is it because something is being triggered within us from when we were children or could it go even beyond that? You know, it's, it's such a good question and it's interesting. When, so when we're looking at being broken up with, there's a very clear biological or chemical experience that happens in our brain that we literally will go into withdrawal. And it can feel like, and, and especially if somebody's, um, we get a divorce or we have some sort of really major loss, um, death loss, then it's as though we go into really severe separation anxiety. Now that doesn't necessarily have to be preceded by a childhood traumatic experience. That that's something that our brain does when our companion, our partner, our person leaves us. And for those of us who are living in a cycle of abandonment wounds, so those of us who have difficult considerations with attachment or really when we start dating somebody kind of dive in and just bend, I call it binge dating. We binge that person. Um, mm -hmm. there's usually a history of some sort of childhood experiences that have resulted in that pattern. And Louis Cozzolino has really succinctly described, he's a wonderful um, affective neuroscientist, um, this kind of concept that 90% of every present moment, 99-0, is defined by the experiences of our past. Wow. That's big, right? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I wouldn't have guessed that it was that amount. Yeah, I would have said even less than 50%. Yeah. So I can't believe that. Would you be able to provide for our listeners some examples of having an abandonment wound? If anyone is walking around thinking, no, I was abandoned, but I don't have that wound. How would someone be able to figure out if they do or if they don't? Heartbreakingly, a lot of times the wound shows up in our most vulnerable, painful spaces. Mm -hmm. So we can be really productive, amazing, confident women or men. I'm sure we have mm -hmm. men listening or they, thems, all, you know, the entire spectrum of humanity. And it's when somebody starts to seep into our sense of connection and safety and our self then gets entangled in the interaction with that person or even starts to become, a, that person starts to become a part of our representation of safety. So going all the way back again to that idea of being a wee baby, mm -hmm. as we grow up and across the course of our life, we have this one brain and this brain goes with us everywhere, hence 90%. And if we're going through our developmental stages in a really healthy and empowered way and our caregivers are saying, Hey, you've got this way to go. Strong work. You're, you're doing, you're doing beautifully. Keep going. And we're starting to internalize that and feel like, yeah, I've got this. I can do it. Then we're developing a sense of safety and security within us. 
if instead mm -hmm. our caregivers and our primary people in our life are saying, you need me, you're not capable, you're relying on me or rejecting of us, not seeing us, not helping us develop a healthy sense of self, then our safety gets externalized. Our security becomes externalized. And then we need other people in order to stabilize and balance ourselves. And the intimate relationships are where that most deeply plays out. Mm -hmm. And so if you start dating somebody and you start to notice that your sense of safety is when you're with that person, you feel stable when you're with that person, you feel secure when you're with that person. And when they leave, you go, oh my gosh, the world's now shaking around me. I need to be back with that person. Mm -hmm. That's because your sense of self and security has been externalized. And again, intimacy is the best space where that shows up because of what's happening chemically when we start falling in love with somebody, we start being attracted to somebody. So more often than not, if you have an abandonment wound, will that cause, will a consequence be then codependency? Could be. Yeah, mm -hmm. could be. Not necessarily more often than not. Um, the, I mean, because I would say there's a large amount of us roaming around who've experienced abandonment in our lives. It's not an uncommon experience. Um, so it could be codependency. It could be severe social anxiety. Mm. Uh, it could be, I work with a number of um, incredible humans who have internal silos is what we call it. Uh, they silo up their emotions and themselves so nobody can get in and nobody can hurt them because they know that when they start being vulnerable and intimate, they start to feel insecure and shaky. And so they just don't let anybody in. So it's really dependent on the type of abandonment and how the person's system has responded throughout their development to stay alive. When we think of abandonment when we're younger, and you touched on this as well, we tend to think about our primary caregivers. So more often than not, we think about our parents or our guardians. Are there any other spaces where we are abandoned as children that can have consequences when we're older, severe consequences? Siblings are one that's really often left out. Okay. Siblings, absolutely. And um, friends, especially as we're growing up and moving into our adolescent, pre-adolescence, adolescence, and teenage years, our system starts to shift and our sense of self becomes more in tune with and defined by our social environment as opposed to our caregiving environment. Mm -hmm. And that's where bullying, cyberbullying, all of this stuff that can go terribly painfully sideways on social media um, all of that becomes so, so, so deeply important for caregivers and teachers and educational systems to pay attention to because okay. those can cause some of the biggest wounds being abandoned because mm -hmm. that really is then being abandoned by your village. Mm -hmm. So diving in then, let's look at siblings first. What are some ways that you could possibly feel abandoned when you're younger when it comes to siblings? I'm going to turn the question on you. What comes to mind for you when I say that? When, when I think, think of about... siblings abandoning yeah. a person, I guess just not being there, not being available. Yeah, so so certainly. It's, I mean, think so many of us, and you know, I, I had a cool older sister. Mm -hmm. um, we, you know, we have these older siblings that we look up to, that we really want to have a relationship and a connection with. And then as the, the, our siblings start to develop or move into other spheres of their life, you know, they reject, they push back, they abandon. And so if there aren't other strong supports in that child's life, then that can become a, a consideration or a difficulty. Um, there's, you know, and getting into kind of the darker side where there's the space of an absent parents and absent um, siblings. So there's other children in the home and the parents are unavailable or you know, using substances or workaholics or whatever it might be, disconnected. And there's now other creatures in the village, the siblings, mm -hmm. who are also running around experiencing their own version of neglect. And then you have younger children who simply don't have a skill set or an ability to survive. And so they're experiencing this 
domino effect of neglect, not because anybody's doing anything intentionally, of course. It's not that the older siblings know that it's their responsibility to take care of these younger children. But from the younger children's point of view, it's not just a caregiver abandonment. It's more a larger sphere of influence abandoning them in their household. And then usually because our caregivers are the surrogates for our nervous systems or social interactions, they teach us who to be in the world. Older siblings can then start to model what the parents are doing. And if there is abuse, especially verbal, physical, whatever going on in the home, that then further isolates and separates the younger siblings, disconnects them even more. Can you feel abandoned by a sibling if you're pursuing a path that they disagree with? Yeah. You can. That's a form of abandonment as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so think about abandonment and there, there's the abandonment as in you're literally physically no longer allowed to be in my life. There's abandonment in terms of, and um, you know, this idea of self-abandonment, which we're taught to abandon ourselves in order to be a part of the village or align with the village. And so often what will happen, especially as somebody who has an abandonment wound and is seeking to come back to self grows up they'll start to set boundaries. They'll start to say, wait a minute, I never really wanted to be a doctor. I really wanted to be an artist. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm really not an accountant. I'm actually a X, Y, Z, fill in the blank here. And especially if there's been an an alignment in the family system where the siblings have kind of locked arms and said to survive, we are together. And then one of the siblings starts to say, actually, I'm going to now become my own person. That family system can shift drastically as the as one as one individual starts to individuate, and then the rejection can happen there. Now they can still have relationships, but the relationships can be fraught with tension and rejection and uh, lack of acceptance, which can be just as bad as abandoning because you're living in the relational space with somebody you love, who you also know is not accepting or approving you. Sometimes that's worse. That's why we talk about how important boundaries are and self-care and self-love and really structuring all of that so that the self is no longer defined by the system that we're living in. Mm -hmm. So if when we're younger, we start to feel abandoned, it could be by a sibling, a parent, caregiver, even a partner, perhaps in our teen years, how we react is it possible that then in adult relationships or with those same family members we're going to react toward them in the same way is this the inner child coming out yeah i love you that you brought up the inner child um absolutely there's uh in the world of psychodynamic psychotherapy we talk about cyclical maladaptive patterns and then another way to think about it is repetition compulsion disorder, which is a repetitive behavior that we do compulsively over and over again. And, we, and so I just think about relationship patterns that hurt us that we just keep doing and we don't know why. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of the colloquial way to describe those things. And, and what it is, so the inner child is this part of us that and it gets arrested or stuck or paralyzed when a traumatic enough experience happens to our brain that our little survival brain, Amy, well, I call her Amy, it's the amygdala. I lovingly call her Amy mm-hmm. the amygdala, um, comes up and says, you know what, Scarlett, we need to remember this forever mm-hmm. because this was painful enough and scary enough that if we forget about it, it could happen again and we might not survive. Now, it doesn't have to actually be life-threatening because, again, we need each other for survival. So abandonment is one of those life-threatening considerations for our brain because we don't do well on our own if we're out in the Sahara Desert and there's lions roaming around us. Mm -hmm. If we're alone, we're not going to survive. If there's somebody else with us, we can maybe at least outrun them. So we need each other. And then these moments when we get triggered or reactive or activated or we're back in a relationship where we go, this isn't good for me, but I'm still doing it. It's because those arrested moments are popping up in our amygdala and starting to run the way our brain is thinking about and processing information in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's that 90%. 
So we talk about the inner child as the representation because those little receptors are called AMPAR receptors, which you don't need to remember that or worry about it. But those little receptors and the specific nucleus on our amygdala literally can hijack our system and start informing everything that's happening in our self, our thinking brain. And then we're acting out of the patterns from when that wound happened, whether it be five years old, seven years old, two years old, whatever it might be. And we've lost our you know, 21st century 2021 self because our adult self isn't available to us anymore. How can we tell as adults if we are reacting to something as our adult selves or as the child versions of ourselves? Have you ever acted or reacted to something as a perhaps younger version than you currently are? I think a lot more frequently than I'd like to admit. <laughs> yeah, me, me too. <laughs> I think whenever I'm arguing with someone, mm. I will almost have this sass on that I can yeah. recognize from maybe when I was younger that the adult more, because I would say I'm a very informed individual. I love psychotherapy, psychology, and I have done a lot of work. So I feel that I have grown to become a very evolved and informed person. So I can recognize when I'm behaving like the child version of me. For anyone who doesn't know and who's going about their day thinking, no, I never, I never react to anything as my child self. Are there some very obvious ways you can tell or maybe some questions you can ask yourself to know how you're reacting, where it's coming from? Yeah. Yeah, wonderful question. And, and that, that's such an important piece to be curious about ourselves. It's so critical. Mm -hmm. um, and, and thank you for your share, because I, you know, I definitely have my adolescent moments. I have my five-year-old moments. I, I call them, you know, my temper tantrums. Mm -hmm. I was like, I want it my way. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Okay. Yeah. They're there. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, Chemically, what it feels like in our body um, is like an injection of adrenaline or cortisol if it's about something survival focused. Now, it's not always. And so um, a lot of times I'll feel a little bit like electricity will start coursing through the system or it can feel like your breath starts to get a little more shallow. Your chest starts to get a little tighter. Um, a, go a good clue is if your brow is furrowed, um, if your jaw is tense or clenched. So, so there's some good physiological markers. An obvious one, obviously, is you notice that your hands are kind of curled up into a ball, or if you're really holding yourself tightly, <laughs> those are larger indicators. Um, but we all have those micro moments where we say something and, or, you know, my favorite is the, the text message that gets sent before our thinking brain goes, oh, I should not have done that. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> been there, done that. Those are the moments that are little, the harder to tweet to tease apart there, there's a great line about experience is what happens after we need it mm -hmm. and so it's the moment where the regret shows up when we send that text message where we can use that as the marker to learn to do differently next time and so the, the questions to ask are first what's happening in my body because our body is one of our best communicators to us and it is one of the most divorced data points from our, for most of us in our brains. We are socialized out of being in relationship with our bodies. And that's actually a key part of abandonment. Because we're taught our gut instinct is wrong. Or if it, it, even if we've ever, if anybody here who's listening or Scarlett, if you've ever been gaslit, where you know a felt truth and somebody says you're wrong, mm. even though every fiber in your body's going, I'm right then we, we're, we start to look at the other person and go, maybe they know something I don't, I can't trust my gut instinct. And that's one of those key arrested moments that most of us have at some point where we've been taught that our felt sense truth is incorrect. And so that's mm -hmm. the next question is, notice your body, what's the energy? What's coming up? And then how old is this energy? How long has this been a part of my life? Does this energy belong to this moment or that stimulus, that text message? 
should that text message have that level of yank on me that I respond before I think? And then if not, when's the first time this was here? Mm-hmm. And you might notice my voice is kind of getting softer and more gentle because when we're starting to move into relationship with our early wounds, it's our job to give our young self what should have been but wasn't. To approach with that gentle, kind, self-compassion, curiosity of, hey, little one, what's going on? Can you share with me? I really want to see you. Hi, Tribers. Having met you at the Smart Girl Tribe Summit, I know how much you love stationery, and I have searched high and low for a stationery brand that is empowering, inclusive, and thoughtfully designed, which is why I am so excited to share Seth Crafts. Not only will Seth Crafts handmade journals and planners help you become intentional about planning your day, but you'll be able to seamlessly track your goals, accomplishments, and even your monthly budget. I opened up in the Smart Girls Handbook about my burnout and the importance of developing a bulletproof self-care routine. And Seth Crafts has been lovingly created to achieve exactly that with zero guilt. Head to the show notes after the episode to see for yourself and as a bonus with the code SGT10, you will get a 10% discount off any product. What are some ways we can connect with our inner child? Because I know for some it will be journaling, maybe writing to them, even an inner child meditation. But being a leading expert in this field, I would love to know if you have any ulterior ways we can connect to that little girl or boy in us yeah. so um we, I, we do have a, a youtube channel which is just my name dr kate truitt and there's loads of content on there about how to deepen our relationship with ourselves and it, it's it's very much a daily practice of finding those little moments where our young self kind of knocks on our brain and says, I need something. And so you mentioned journaling. Journaling's great. Um, one of my favorite exercises is doing a, a left, right, or a dominant, non-dominant hand journaling exercise. And so in a moment where we notice a reaction that was less than preferable, if we notice that our mood takes a sudden nosedive or suddenly we're ruminating or chewing on something with anxiety or worry or agitation in, a, in our non-dominant hand, so the, the hand that we use least frequently, so our non-writing hand, um, we're going to be responding from the voice of the energy. And so to start the exercise, use your normal hand that you write with and ask the question, hey, how are you? What's going on? Or is there something I need to know? and then swap hands and respond from the non-dominant hand from the emotional space. Because it's inviting our brain to be in a different realm with the feeling. And then whatever that answer is, you know, um, you know that text message really upset me, that person really hurt my feelings. Um, I'm just mad. Sometimes that's what will come back, I'm just mad. Mm-hmm. Um, then switch hands and ask another curiosity-driven question. How can I help you? What else do I need to know? What happened to result in the anger? Whatever it is, you're just trying to down arrow into the information so that you can learn as much as you can. So, So that's a longer exercise to do. But a really quick, easy hack is in a moment of reactivity, when that inner child's popping their head up and going, there's a tiger in the room, even Mm -hmm. if our adult self's going, no, there really is no tiger here. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a wonderful tool called Havening, and um, that's basically a a self-healing as well as a therapeutic modality that we use clinically to treat trauma. But in the self-healing capacity, there's an exercise called creating personal resilience for the amygdala or CPR for the amygdala. And it's basically giving yourself a nice gentle hug. So if you cross your arms across your chest, wrap, tap your fingertips on your shoulders, and then move your hands down the outside of your arms to your elbows and then repeat that motion as though you're giving yourself a nice moving hug. 
and then you're going to play some brain games or um, you know if you have a favorite space that you like to go to in your imagine imagination like walking on a beach take yourself to that beach count the steps as you walk on the beach or count the waves as they roll in um, you can sing um, songs count numbers play category games and those two actions will be calming down the amygdala so that you're no longer in an activated state. So CPR for the amygdala is basically just like we do breath work to downregulate our heart rate. CPR for the amygdala is downregulating our brain. And from there, we can move into a self-compassion exercise again of, okay, so what was just happening there? How old was I in that moment? Mm -hmm. Or if it's you only have two, three minutes, do CPR for the amygdala, make a note then go back into your meetings or your day. I mean, so many people do, you know, this self-havening exercise. They pop into the loo, do two minutes of havening, and then go back into their regular day. But make a note to come back to that energy later and explore what happened. So that's the quickest way to get us back to our adult brain when we, when our, one of our inner children have shown up and said, I'm five years old right now. And we're like, we're in a board meeting. You can't be five. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand that completely. And those are two very powerful methods I think that they're amazing I think they could possibly change someone's life because they're two that I would be very willing to practice myself but I haven't really heard of before so I think that's definitely something to carry forward especially for our listeners one thing I'd also love to ask is I have had a lot of questions in the lead up to this conversation about how can you tell when you're an adult, if you were maybe dumped or rejected or heartbroken when you were younger or in your early 20s, what are the common, most common ways, I should say, when you're an adult that you would react from that abandonment wound? If you were heartbroken, how do you know that you're still carrying that wound with you? You know, our, our brains really, really... Um wisely unwise sometimes and the fact that when there's still a wound there we will link back to it our our amygdala those little receptors we were just talking about mm -hmm. she will be looking out for like stimuli in our life like that reminds me of that person oh that there's that song songs are great for that right after a bad breakup oh mm -hmm. man <laughs> there's certain songs like i can never listen mm -hmm. to that song again yeah, and that and part of that is because it's looped into the pain of the breakup of the wound. And so the more frequently that those wounds show up and our little friend Amy back there throws it into our you know, driver's seat with us, um, that that's a really, really good tell that there's still something there to do some work on. And um, the cool thing about that CPR for the amygdala we just talked about is in those moments, doing that little exercise actually starts to delink or turn off those receptors that are carrying the wounds of the past forward. And that's how can we can use it. And when we do deeper work in clinical therapy, so, but we can actually start to do our own wound healing work. So it's like putting on neosporin, a little bit of alcohol, letting the wound clear mm -hmm. out and cleanse just through doing CPR for the amygdala. But if the more something's showing up in our purview, the more the greater the likelihood that that's tied into some sort of wound or unprocessed work. And you know, I say the word trauma, and it doesn't have to be big T trauma. Relationships can leave us with deep interpersonal wounds, especially when where somebody unexpectedly rejects us or walks away, ghosts us, um, something that triggers something from that 90% of the past mm -hmm. that was not good enough. I've done something wrong where we start to internalize and carry the blame. That is like cotton candy for our little amygdala. She will ruminate on it, latch onto it, and throw it at us going into the future until we help her know it's safe and we can let go. So let's talk about some examples, being heartbroken, being rejected. You just mentioned, Dr. Kate, about being ghosted. What are some ways you can start to heal that wound? Yeah. So depending on the intensity of the disruption, 
Um, you know, obviously we want to be mindful that if somebody has experienced or is experiencing a generalizing anxiety or depression, you know, finding somebody to give you some additional support as you're doing your healing journey is really, really important. So and we obviously want to put that disclaimer out there and there are a lot mm -hmm. of really amazing people in the world doing really amazing work. Um, if it's that sense of kind of punch to the gut, chemical withdrawal, can't get out of bed, uh, that, that is a com combination of the chemical experience of being ghosted or broken up with and our system just literally crashing out of having a lot of norepinephrine and adrenaline and cortisol, not cortisol, um, dopamine, all these feel good chemicals coursing through our system going, that's my person. And then that mm -hmm. person, whew, it, that's withdrawal. And so one of the best things that we can do is reach out to other safe others. So it's not going to feel the same, but it's as though we're giving ourselves a nice warm fuzzy blanket. And when we are in relationship with the safe others, it's great to process through the experience. It's fine to talk about it, but don't ruminate on it because the more that, and ruminate is this idea of we're repeatedly going through it in our brain over <laughs> and over and over again is the more that we allow our brain to be like a dog on a bone with something painful the more we're telling our brain this really is important and we do need to make this our primary focus and so the longer that we can get stuck in that loop and so that is where that cpr for the amygdala is great or um, exercise is wonderful, uh, you know, getting some friends together and even just getting out and going for a walk because you're starting to give your system those missing chemicals in a different way. So those, those are all the easy fixes. The mm -hmm. harder part is if there's somebody who's had this experience and those self recriminations are showing up, I did something wrong. There's something wrong with me. Mm their inappropriate responsibility taking or those I am statements that are really, really painful. That's where moving into some really deep intentional self-compassion work is important. And so, um, are you, are you familiar with Dr. Kristen Neff? No, I'm not. Oh, she's amazing. Okay. So, for, so, so for the Smart Girl Tribe, you, yeah. everybody needs to look up Kristen Neff, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-N-E-F-F. -F. Okay. Um, she's the world's foremost expert in self-compassion. Okay. And one of the things, so go on her website. She's all incredible tools, tons of knowledge. She's very much like we are, very shareware. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that she's found in her research is that an incredible anecdote to shame is self-compassion. And okay. Brene Brown talks about this a lot yeah. too. And so when we're in that space of, I've done this, I'm bad, I'm not good enough, I'm a failure. That's where we need to bring in self-compassion and a great exercise is a self-compassion letter. And so it's stepping back and imagine, writing a letter from the point of view of your, our, your best friend, um, if you have a wonderful relationship with a caregiver, that person, if you have a spiritual relationship, maybe the all-knowing being um, that spiritually loves and guides you. Um, you know, I, I've, I have a cute little pup here sleeping on my feet, snoring away. Um, you know, I could imagine that she's writing me a self-compassion letter because she wants nothing but love for me mm -hmm. in the world, right? So if I can't find somebody, dogs are always great. <laughs> um, but it's this entity that's going to write us a letter about the current situation because this entity knows all of it. And from the state of the deepest love and support that we could possibly imagine. So it's basically how we would talk to somebody we loved and cared about, but we always forget to give ourselves that same kindness. Hmm. How, not necessarily very specifically, but if somebody has been ghosted let's just say someone's in a relationship and then all of a sudden that person disappears so not even when you're dating but you've actually been in a relationship or you have been broken up with or you have had a crush on someone you finally told them how you feel and they reject you and they say no they're just not into you that way we obviously need to start healing that wound writing a letter I think that's amazing being a writer myself I love that idea how often do you think we need to 
practice self-compassion techniques until we can maybe consider ourselves fully healed doing your work and meeting the patients and the clients that you have would you say it tends to take dot 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 or could it be infinite could you be doing this work possibly forever one of my mentors has this beautiful concept of active well-being Um, he's actually one of the founders of havening um, dr stephen rudin and um, active well-being is the idea that every day we need to be actively living in a state of intentional well-being so it's never a okay I'm, i'm well now and i'm plateaued so being we are beings if we want to be well we have to be active about it And so self-compassion, doing the self-healing in your hands, the havening work, um, doing breath work, even bite-sized moments of meditation, all all that stuff kind of gets short-sift because it's like, eh, I I can do that once a month or, you know, I go to therapy once a week, that's plenty. But our brain is functioning all the time. Mm -hmm. Even while we're sleeping, our brain is still you know, making sense of and sorting all the data from our day-to-day life. And so if we're not living in a state of active well-being, then we're creating the possibility for vulnerabilities or for our wounds to fester or grow or expand, or for Amy, our dear friend, to start taking over and designing our thought patterns or our processes. So it's really a, a life practice. Now, that being said, I'm, I'm a very, very busy woman. Scarlett, I know you're an incredibly busy woman. I mean, you just did a book release in March, so I can only imagine what your schedule's been mm. like since then, and on top of everything else that you're doing that's amazing in the world. So it, it's it, for those, you know, and I'm sure your listeners are the same way. Everybody leads these incredibly full lives. And so it's finding those snippets, little micro moments to take a moment and do a breath or to take a moment and say, okay, I'm going to give, even if I don't need it, I'm going to give myself a nice little moving hug and just let myself know I have my own back. We're, we're back at, we're back at ground zero connected inside. And then what I like to do in my own day-to-day life and my patients and I talk about this in, in their healing journeys is find anchor moments. So every time you sit down in a specific chair, Know that when you sit down in that chair, you're going to plan for two minutes to do, give yourself a moving hug and do some what ifs, something called creating possibilities. What if I was excited today? Mm. Or what if I loved myself in this moment? Just pondering questions and the moving hug that we discussed earlier, you know, the fingertips down the arms to the elbows over and over again is going to be down-regulating the brain into a, a space of grounded calm. And so it's taking these bite-sized moments. So across the course of the day, we can build up to, you know, 21 minutes of the day. That's like, what, 7% of the day Mm. of really intentional self-connection moments. And it doesn't have to be a practice in terms of, I'm setting aside this 20 Mm. minutes. I mean, do you have this experience where sometimes 20 minutes feels like that's an impossible task? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you know, for me in the morning, I'm about to go walk my dog. I take a moment. She's about the cutest thing in the world. And so I look down at my little puppy and I go, ah, this is going to be a mm-hmm. great day. We've got this. And then just yeah. give myself a moment and a breath or I get every time I get in my car, same thing. And those little micro moments build up or putting a hand on the heart space with a breath and going, hey, how are we today? Checking in with the entire internal system. Is there any part of me that needs some extra love? It doesn't mean in that moment you have to pull out your journal and start journaling. Our, Our system loves to be seen and heard. And guess what? That's the opposite of abandonment. Yeah, wow. I love everything you just shared with us and I'm so grateful that we together have been able to cultivate a space where my listeners can experience this with you one thing that you mentioned a little earlier was being gaslit so still talking about abandonment one thing I would love to discuss is if you are talking to someone and as you described you know you're right and I have had this before I have 
being completely transparent, I have met people who my intuition tells me they're not very good people. They're not, that's the best way I can put it, the most polite way. They're not very good people. And then I'll be with a friend or even my partner and he or my friends will say, oh no, they are a good person. And then a year down the line, it actually turns out that they weren't. And I have had this experience many a time. So you're almost in a way, I wouldn't say that's necessarily being completely gaslit, but it's very similar. So for anyone who has found themselves in that kind of position, knowing they're right in their intuition, but taking on this idea or opinion that they're wrong, how can they avoid abandoning themselves? Beautiful question. And what a wonderful um, example you just gave. Mm. We have all had those moments where our instinct says no. And then for, and and usually because it's somebody else, they go, yes, Mm -hmm. we we buy in. And then we're like, oh man, I knew it. I knew it. I knew Mm -hmm. it. And, and, and just to, you know, pull that out, zoom out from that a little bit that happens with people that also happens with choices that we make where all of the facts line up in one direction but our gut instinct says no or somebody else says yeah but you just need to do it anyway mm-hmm. so it's those micro moments of feeling pressured and j- just a little context there especially when it's people who we trust remember our brain is village focused it says i need these people and so we're more likely to abandon ourselves if there's somebody that we really, really feel connected to. And especially if there's multiple people weighing in on the other side of the equation. And if we're coming from a space where our brain has been taught across the course of our life that we don't know what's right or wrong. We haven't been taught self-trust then we're very quick to acquiesce mm. because our gut instinct isn't validated. And at some, it can be so, so deeply painful to the point of which where if we have a gut instinct, we're like, I'm going to do the other thing mm-hmm. because we've learned not to trust our own internal radar. So that, what we were just talking about, those little micro exercises are a critical part of reconnecting with self of, in a moment where we're not in crisis, in a moment where we're just navigating our day-to-day life, if we check in and go, how, how am I today? What's the data here? Is there anything I need to pay attention to? And any yellow flags, Amy, going on back here? Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you're worried about? And inviting our brain to share with us rather than trying to you know, grind it out with a boot heel and just keep going forward. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that slow evolution of self-validation that heals the abandonment wound. And we don't learn to self-abandon. We're taught to self-abandon through people telling us that our gut instincts are wrong, what we think is wrong, what we're feeling is wrong, rather than helping us to understand that there's many perspectives, many ways of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. And our way is just as valid as every, as every other way. And sometimes we may choose to go along with something. And so back to your point about the person, everybody else is saying go along with it and giving yourself permission to hold your space and to have your boundaries and build your unique individualized relationship with that person, or mm-hmm. maybe not at all. But giving yourself the permission to do that because your gut instinct saying, this is a bad egg. I'm not going to invest my precious. I mean, number one commodity we have is our time. I'm not, I'm not investing my time in something that doesn't feel right for me. Yeah. And we're socialized out of giving ourselves that permission. We have to give it back to ourselves. Do you find that women perhaps struggle with this a lot more? I mean, even thinking now one person who I felt my intuition was an older man And being around my friends, you said, no, this was a good person. I knew in my gut it he wasn't. Yet over the year that we were in the same space and the same environment, I still found myself trying to please 
this bad person, even though my intuition had initially told me this is a bad person, because I was relying on almost my village and I was trusting trusting them. I was almost abandoning how I felt inside. And I still found myself trying to please this person, trying to make them happy. So would you say that women tend to struggle with self-abandonment a lot more? I would say anybody who's part of the marginalized communities. Okay. Because there isn't the safety and security that is granted to individuals who are not part of the marginalized community. And the more that somebody's identification, the more that they are on the fringes, the more that safety and security can start to be built into and rely upon how we're able to show up in the world as a non-threatening entity for number one, or as a useful entity. And, and that useful part is really a big piece of what's socialized for women specifically. And so what you just described, Scarlett, is such a common experience. And, and I so appreciate your vulnerability in sharing that because that is something that so many of us do and then struggle to reconcile internally. I felt this person wasn't good for me. And yet I'm working even harder now to people please. And so our little friend, Amy, you know, she's got the fight, flight, or freeze that we all know about and talk mm -hmm. about. There's a fourth F and that's called fawn. And so when that fawn comes on board, especially if that fawn is showing up, so we're fawning over somebody, there's a piece of us that's going, I have been given data that this person's important. And especially if our gut's going, no, Amy will hypercompensate in the other direction as though she's trying to convince us now she's buying in, she's colluding with the internal rejection. So our brain will actually buy in to the system that we put in place when we self-reject when we are self-abandon ourselves. Which is very confusing, which is why one of my goals in life is to be like, here's your brain being a brain. You're not doing anything wrong. You're not full. You're not shameful. You're not broken. You are good enough. You're amazing. Mm -hmm. Because our brain will do these really counterintuitive things. You're like, I don't like this person, but I work so hard. You want to talk about classic daddy issues. This person's not great for me, but I really need to overcompensate so I get that pat on the head. Yes. Yeah, I can completely, um, that makes sense to me because now looking back and zooming out and it's been a few months since I cut the cord with this person, with this old person, I wouldn't have even said they were a staple in my life at all, but it was a very clear example to me, especially zooming out afterwards, being able to see that I had that intuition yet I was fawning on this person, as you said, and that yeah it was just almost it was just a very immediate response mm -hmm. yeah yeah amy's fast and just to give you a, 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 and you and your, your listeners an idea of how quickly our amygdala starts to play a role uh, i'll just invite everybody to blink one time so that's how long it takes for our thinking brain to come online. So from me giving me that input and you actually blinking, that's an entire brainwave process of your thinking brain going blink. Okay. Mm, okay. Four times faster than that. Four times wow. is when Amy is starting to make sense of the world. Okay. So she's chiming in without our conscious awareness. And so that's where Dr. Cozzolino's 90% of the past showing up in the present moment is critical. And that's where doing our own really mindful, intentional relationship development with ourselves is so critical. Mm. Because she'll show up with a red flag. And the more we do our CPR for the amygdala, the more we do our breath work, our curiosity, our internal curiosity, getting to know ourselves experience. The, the red flag will turn into a yellow flag or even just stop and our brain will now be shifted into a state of oh that when that data when that type of stimulus that type of person used to show up i used to override my instincts now when i see that stimulus i know that that type of person doesn't have a pull on me and i'm actually going to do this instead 
Yeah. We have to teach ourselves that, and that does take intentionality. One environment where I personally find that we tend to self-abandon more is the family home. Because when we're around <laughs> our family, we go back into those old patterns, we become our child selves, etc. If we are going about, we're trying to be, I like to say, as informed as we can be, maybe as evolved as we can be, yet we're entering back into our family home. Is there any way that we can heal? Do you have any tips or anything in particular you'd like to share with our audience to help them if they're trying to be their most evolved selves and better selves and most healed selves? Yet when they go back into that family dynamic, those around them aren't exactly encouraging of that new behavior. Yeah, the, the family system and, and our brain is context dependent, Scarlet. And, and this is just important data point for everybody in the world to know. And it doesn't have to be you're going back to the family house. The context is the people. Mm. And so as soon as we are back in those interactions, our brain goes, I know these neural freeways. I know my pattern and my habits with these people. And we will fall into our childhood jobs in an instant. And most of us have roles or jobs that we've been given in our childhood. And that's to what you just asked. So, so that's what we're trying to do is say, I'm not going to do my old job. And so that, and that's how I'll help people set the start setting themselves up for success when they're returning home for the holidays, um, or when they're going into family vacations, I'm, I'm taking a, an airplane out tomorrow to go see my family. And I've been doing my own work around this. How do I not do my job? so that we can actually, I can do my best work and within myself and really enjoy the family and my, and my little niece who's just a fireball and I haven't seen her because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So how do we be our best selves as adults rather than, because we collude in it. And, and so that's why I'm bringing my own personal story in. I will give myself my old job and so I'll have my little temper tantrums in the family, which makes sense in the family system, but then all of a sudden one person does an old pattern and everybody is now back in, I'm gonna date myself here, 1985. We're all back there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when we can zoom out before going into the family structure and really pay attention to what is the role that we play? So um, I was always the fixer. I, I would carry the responsibility. I would do everything I can to make sure there were no ruffled feathers. Um, that, that was kind of my job is if everybody's calm, we're okay. There's a reason why I'm a psychologist. <laughs> yeah. All right. But when I go into that role, it teaches everybody else's nervous systems that they're, they're now in the role where they can have temper tantrums or act out or be whoever they were in 1985. And so it's my job to give myself permission to be me so that they, their nervous systems have permission to be them too. Mm -hmm. So knowing our role is critical. And then that's a really great journaling exercise of creating, writing, getting a big piece of paper and creating a quadrant or a space on the paper for each family member. And then going back to a difficult time, because we know our hardest times are where our jobs that we've been given come out in the biggest, boldest manner. And looking at what is the role that each person played in that hard time? And then finding anywhere from five to 10 adjectives or um, data points. And it's not that you're going to know the role. The data points are there to help you start to inform. When things get hard, what does this person do? What does mom do when things get hard? Oh, she starts baking. She exhausts herself taking care of the house. She overperforms. Okay, so mom turns into an exhausted caretaker, which then leads to resentment. And, and I'm, I'm not alluding to my own family system here. <laughs> What does dad do when things get hard? Oh, when things get hard, dad disappears. He comes home really late. He was an overworker that gives him value because he's creating for the family. So there's financial stability. So when things get hard at home, he's over here creating alternative success to take care of the family because, oh wait, dad doesn't have the tools for emotional engagement. Not his fault, wasn't taught them. Okay, so dad's job is to provide and create success outside the family system. When, what does sister do? What does brother do? What does so, and, and through that, we are, we're narrowing into identifying our trigger points because if mom starts to overperform 
And if child like me was a caregiver, a I want to fix everything, when she would overperform, I would jump on top of her to take care of the tasks because I wouldn't want her to get tired. Because mm-hmm. when she would get tired, then I would feel like I hadn't done my job and I would feel bad because kids are always trying to fix the system or yeah. abandon the system because the system's unsafe. The, the second job then for us to take a look at once we have defined their experiences is to write down what do we do when we see our parent behaving in this way. And trust me, the parents could be 85, 90 years old. We're still going to be doing the exact same thing that we were doing when we were 12 years old or five years old because we can't change them. Right. Yeah. But what we can start to do is when we notice their behavior and we feel our pull to do our old behavior, that's where we can leave the system. But if we don't have an awareness around that, then we are going to continue to collude and teach our brain that the patterns are okay and self-abandoned. Wow. I want to just say thank you for sharing that. I think it's so powerful because the family dynamic affects everyone. And like you said, so beautifully, you don't even have to go home, but just having those family members, I mean, mine is spread all over the world and I can completely relate to some things that you're saying now. One thing I would love to ask you, are there any particular books or resources that you would recommend to our audience who would like to explore this topic further? Yeah, so Dr. Richard Schwartz, or he goes by Dick Schwartz, um, he has a wonderful book. It's, it's a workbook called you, you, what, um, You're the One You've Been Waiting For. And it, it's all about moving into internal curiosity and relationship with self. So I highly recommend that. It's a beautiful guide. Um, obviously our YouTube channel, the, the way we've set it up is we do a psychoeducational video every week and then we follow that up with some sort of guided or um, psychotherapeutic exercise on Sundays that comes out to support the guided or the psychoeducational video that comes out on Wednesdays. And then we just go through different topic matters and people you know, send me on Instagram d- DMs and they say, what do you mm-hmm. want to talk about today? Or this, you know, they give me topic ideas, which is great. Um, one other little plug, you know, the social media app Clubhouse, um, we have a pragmatic neuroscience room or Clubhouse Club. And um, on Fridays, we always do a room that's about the, these exact types of conversations. But the nice thing, as we know, is it's a live podcast. So people come up on stage and they share their stories and their conversations with us. Yeah. And we get to get into the, the nuances of the wacky things our brain is doing, our amygdala is doing, how mm-hmm. come we're in this weird pattern and neurobiologically normalize it to remove the shame and then get into a space of self-compassion, self-love, and then pattern changing, creating a difference. And so we have all sorts of different thought leaders from around the world that join us. And Scarlett, if you're on Clubhouse, we'd love to have you come on and do a room with us. It'd be amazing. No, of course. Uh, I would love to. Thank you. And then Brene Brown's podcast. I mean, mm-hmm. Brene you know, I can't go wrong with Brene. Um, her podcast is phenomenal. A lot of people don't know that she has a podcast now. I mean, a lot of people do know, but for those of you who are out there don't know, yeah. incredible resource. And she brings in, again, amazing thought leaders all over the world, but she weaves in the self-compassion, the self-kindness. And I kind of feel like Brene's the voice in the back of all of our heads that is teaching us it's okay to be human. Mm -hmm. and how to love ourselves with our humanity, not in spite of. Being a psychologist, Dr. Kate, I would love to know if there is a particular mantra that you live by or a little something that you say a lot to your patients. Be gentle. Be gentle kind of encompasses all of it. Yeah, when, when we're having our hard human moments, you know, we, we weren't brought into this world in a state of self-abandonment. Mm-hmm. We were brought into this world in a space of possibility and, and amazingness. And then through the course of our lives, we're, we're taught really amazing, powerful lessons. And we're also taught some deeply, deeply painful ones. And as children, those deeply painful lessons, because we do rely on our caregivers so easily become internalized and then become a core part of how we experience ourselves in the world 
Yeah. And, I, and I like to talk a lot about, you know, those moments where we're feeling shameful or we're feeling guilt or we're taking on an inappropriate responsibility for something. Just imagine you're turning around and giving your amygdala a high five, like you're keeping me safe in this moment, brain. I don't understand why yet, maybe, but a high five, Amy, because where that came from was a way that you learned without any data, without the skills that you needed in a hard moment, how to survive. So high five, strong work, and we don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kate, for coming on to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast. It was amazing having you today and what a powerful conversation. Thank you, Scarlett. So appreciate everything that you bring into the world, you and your tribe, and you know, please let me know how we can be of support at the really beautiful work that you're doing. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast. I am your host, Scarlett V. Clark, award-winning founder and CEO of Smart Girl Tribe, the UK's number one female empowerment organization, host of this top-rated podcast, the Smart Girl Tribe podcast, and author. You are my community, my family, so come and follow along for more female empowerment and personal development in our private Facebook group, the Smart Girl Tribe Society, or on Twitter or Instagram at Smart Girl Tribe.